I invite you to turn in them with me once again to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17. We return to this study. Those of you who are visiting, we've been in this book for several months, and we return to this study. It's a big book, the book of Acts, and I'm trying to make as much headway as we can and not uh, be too slow in working through this book. But um, we have a big chunk before us uh, this morning. Acts chapter 17, as we've been walking through this narrative, this story of the early church, we have been reminded the Lord has continued to teach us and to show us of what He has done and what He is doing in us as a church and what He calls us to be as a church. Some wonderful themes keep reoccurring. The gospel is on the move. It will not be stopped. God is at work And it's a marvel to watch. And it's no different today as we come to Acts chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in the insert uh, that's found in your bulletin. Listen as I read. Uh, This is God's holy word. And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before their city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And all the people and all the city and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy, they remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him him as he saw a city full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? 
Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish therefore to know what these things mean. And all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spend, would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands, as if He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards Him and find Him. And yet He is actually not far from each of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought to think, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Others, among, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, for those of you who were here, we focused on three unique individuals in the city of Philippi. A city that didn't give Paul and Silas and Luke all that good of a reception, and yet Paul struck a chord with these three people. And we described them as characteristic of the comfortably religious the hopelessly enslaved, and the spiritually indifferent. Last week we focused on three people. Today I want to focus on three cities. Three cities. Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. What has the Lord to teach us from these cities? Well, I think there are two truths that I want to meditate on this morning. Two truths that I want us to think about for the next few minutes. And the first one is this. Jesus is speaking through His Word. We need to learn to listen. Jesus is speaking through His Word. We need to learn to listen. We pick up the travels of Paul and Silas as they head southwest from the city of Philippi to the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the capital of this region, the capital of Macedonia, about 100 miles 
journey from Philippi. And you'll remember that Philippi didn't have enough Jews to warrant a synagogue. A synagogue was an ancient place of worship for those Jews who were away from Jerusalem, the temple, the place of worship for the Jews. And so they had these smaller houses, these synagogues where they would meet and and worship the Lord. Well, Philippi didn't have a synagogue because there weren't enough Jews in that city. But in Thessalonica, we do find enough Jews. And so Paul continues to kind of his standard operating procedure, and that is come into a city, find the synagogue, find where the Jews are worshiping, and open up the Scriptures to them. He does the same thing in Berea, which we'll get to in just a moment. It's a tale of, the first two cities are a tale of two very similar cities. Both cities, Thessalonica and Berea, probably receive much the same message. And Luke, who wrote this book, who wrote this historical account, tells us, as he describes what happened in Thessalonica, what was front and center in Paul's ministry. Well, it's something we've seen before. It's something we've talked about before. It's a reoccurring theme in the book of Acts. It's that the Word of God is central. And the central figure of the Word of God, Jesus the Christ. You see, as Paul and Silas came to these cities of Thessalonica and Berea, both cities, both hearers, both synagogues had this rich Old Testament context with which to hear Paul's words. They knew the law. They knew the prophets. They had known them from childhood. They loved them. And Paul's background as a former Pharisee was just the same. He loved God's law. He loved the prophets. He loved the stories of old. And yet, the law was no longer a burden to him. He had found freedom in the one to whom the law and the prophets spoke. He had found freedom in the person of Jesus. And so as Paul comes into Thessalonica, you've got to imagine how much Paul, the former Pharisee, the former Jewish scholar, loved opening up Psalm 16. For you, your Holy One will not see decay. That's Jesus, he says. That's the Christ you've been waiting for. The Messiah that you've been longing for for generations. That's Him. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember what Jesus said on the cross, he would remind them of? Did you hear what Jesus said on the cross? He said these words. This is speaking of Jesus. Isaiah 53. All these places that Paul would take the Jewish listeners to. And, and, and what does Luke say? His point is to show them that this Jesus is the Christ you have been waiting for. He is the one. Put your trust in Him. Hear Him. Listen to Him. 
And for three consecutive weeks, Paul returned to the synagogue at Thessalonica. And what does it say? Luke goes out of his way to describe what he did. He reasoned from the Scriptures. He explained the Scriptures. He proved the Scriptures. He sought to persuade with the Scriptures. God had spoken and God was still speaking through Paul as the living and active Word of God was being preached in the synagogue. And of course, to the Jewish mind, to the Jewish presuppositions, what Paul was expounding, what Paul was saying was scandalous. Yes, the Jews for centuries have been waiting for the Messiah to come. But the Messiah was supposed to rule over these Romans. He wasn't supposed to be crucified by the Romans. And now you're saying that that guy who was crucified and buried in a tomb... Is our Christ, our man, our Messiah? Oh, it's too much for the Jews of Thessalonica. It's a repeat of of really Jesus' day. They knew that if they told the Roman authorities that these men who had come to upset the world, if if they told the Roman authorities that these men were claiming another king, that they would suddenly have the Romans on their side, and that's exactly what they did. Oh yes, Paul got some meager response, some meager converts there in Thessalonica. But it's not before long where he's run out of town. In the dark of night, he flees to Berea, this city 55 miles further southwest, kind of a small city off the beaten path. And he does the same thing he did in Thessalonica. He goes to the synagogue. But Luke tells us something different about the Bereans. Verse 11, he says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the Word with eagerness. They examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Two cities, one big difference. The setting was the same, synagogue, Jews, expounding the Old Testament that they might see that Jesus is the Christ. The sermon may have even been identical. The difference was the hearers. The difference was eagerness and examination. It's as if Luke, in verse 11, kind of stops us in this this whole history and says, This, church of Jesus, this is something that's worth looking at. This is something that's worthy of imitations. You see, the Bereans, they wanted to hear the Word because they believed that the Word was God speaking. And not only that, but they were willing, if shown clearly from that same Word, they were, wor- they were willing to let that word change them. Even their most strongly held presuppositions and positions, they were willing to be changed. Because God was speaking, and they needed to listen. You see, I think in these first two cities of Thessalonica and Berea, What God reminds us today as you sit here as the church of Jesus, 
a small sliver of the church of Jesus in 2014, God reminds us and calls us to have this same kind of Berean spirit. Eagerness and examination about the word being taught, about the word being explained. And brothers and sisters, that's what's happening right now. Well, I suspect that I know, I don't suspect, I know because I speak from experience that we have a Berean spirit about a lot of things. Maybe it's the Wall Street Journal. Maybe it's the sports section of the newspaper. Maybe it's Facebook. We're willing to take time. We're willing to dig in. We're willing to examine with eagerness. But so often when it comes to hearing God's Word, as the Puritan Thomas Shepard is quoted as saying, our minds are like buckets without bottoms. I know that. It's the case with me as well. We walk out of here at times with nothing on our mind except the Seahawks. Cultivating a Berean spirit, brothers and sisters, begins by treasuring this as God's Word. And not just treasuring this as God's Word, but recognizing the importance of even what we're doing right now. Of God's Word being preached and proclaimed in a context of God's people together by a servant who in weakness and in brokenness is called to do this. Let me tell you, this is something that really tempts me at times to stay in bed on Sunday mornings. Because I believe that when God is speaking through the preaching of His Word, that it's God speaking to His people. If you have your Bibles, turn with me briefly to Romans chapter 10. I think we've looked at this verse before. It's worth looking at again. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. This is a significant passage for understanding the place of preaching in the context of God's people. And for cultivating this Berean spirit that we see in Acts chapter 17. Paul is speaking in Acts, or excuse me, in Romans chapter 10 of the necessity of both Jew and Gentile hearing the message of salvation. And he writes in verse 14, Romans 10, 14, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And we believe that this Word is infallible. It's without error. And the issue for us in this verse is that, that phrase, that phrase, of whom they have never heard in verse 14. You see, the translators, they smooth it out in English. In in Greek, there's no of there. Many of you have the ESV Bible. You can even look down at the bottom of your ESV footnote and there'll be a little footnote that says, or him who they have never heard. 
So let me read it again. How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? It's a small, subtle difference, but oh so important because Jesus is gone from this earth. Jesus is ascended, and yet the point is that when His Word is proclaimed, in this context, that He is speaking to His people. In the weakness of this messenger that you have before you, in the foolishness of this format, preaching, God speaks to His people. Jesus speaks to His people. And we need to learn to listen. If you've grown up in the Reformed or the Presbyterian Church, you know that this is one of the strengths of our tradition. is holding in high regard what's going on here. Richard Baxter, a well-known 17th century English theologian, he wrote this long ago about your task in this, what we're doing right now. He says, make it your work with diligence to apply the word as you are hearing it. Cast not all upon the minister as though that will go no further than they are carried as by force. You have work to do as well as the preacher and should all the time be busy as he. You must open your mouths and digest it for another cannot digest it for you. Therefore, be all the while at work and abhor an idle heart in hearing as well as an idle minister. Call up, all, call up all when you come home in secret, and by meditation preach it over to yourselves. If it were coldly delivered by your preacher, do you preach it more earnestly over to your own hearts? Puritans were certainly known for being serious. But they were also very godly. And I know this is hard as you come in on your day off, on this day rest, a day of rest, it's hard to think about. You just want to be passive. You want to sit and soak. But if we believe that this is God's word, and if we believe that God speaks to his people through this word, oh, how we need to learn to listen. I came across some helpful advice, some really practical advice from a fellow minister about putting this into practice. He gives five helpful suggestions, and I want to give them to you real briefly. As you listen to God's Word, as you cultivate a Berean spirit, number one, listen for the voice of God. Listen for the voice of God. Yes, I am speaking. I am not God. But in the mystery of This living Word and God's Spirit who is among us. God is speaking to you. Listen for Him. I love it when some of you come to me after worship and you say, I can't believe what you were saying. It was like you were speaking directly to me after my week. And I say, thank you, Lord, for speaking to your people Number two, seek to be blessed. Excuse me, seek not to be blessed, but to hear the truth. Seek not to be blessed, but to hear the truth. What I mean by that is that your own 
growth in grace. Your own sanctification is what God is concerned about. Not you walking out of this room with a good feeling. With a fuzzy feeling. Seek not to be blessed, but to hear truth. Number three, as you listen, be thinking about obeying. How is this truth going to change me? James says that a man who hears the word but doesn't do it is one that looks at himself in the mirror and immediately goes away and forgets what he looks like. As you listen, be thinking, how can I obey? How is this going to change me? That's number three. Number four, pray and prepare. You stretch before you go jogging. You need to do some spiritual stretching before you come to worship. It's a spiritual activity. You need grace. And the evil one is going to try every week to derail you, to distract you from hearing the voice of God. And then fifth, talk about what you hear. Talk about what you hear How many times have you had a conversation with someone that you didn't intend to go off on a certain tangent and you say, wow, that was really helpful. I just needed to talk through that. I just needed to hear myself say that. That's how we're built. It's how we're wired. And when we come to God's Word, we're made to interact with one another on that Word in community. And we do that in our families and we do that in community groups. That's why both of those things are so important. How are you receiving God's Word? Jesus still speaks. And we need to learn to listen. That's the lesson from Thessalonica and from Berea this morning. But as we come to the latter part of Acts chapter 17, Paul has been run out of the city. He's gone to Berea and now he's leaving Berea, because the Thessalonica crowd has followed him there, because he's the main issue, the main instigator, his companions can stay in Berea, and he goes by himself to Athens. And Athens teaches us something else. Berea and Thessalonica focus on us here as hearers. Athens focuses focuses on us as speakers. And so that's the second truth I want us to see. Not just Jesus still speaks, so we need to learn to listen. But now God has spoken. Now we need to learn how to speak. God has spoken. Now we need to learn to speak. As Paul continues to carry the gospel across the ancient world, he comes now to the New York, the Paris the London of the ancient world. That's what Athens was. For centuries, it was the intellectual, cultural center of the empire. And though its glory by this time was starting to wane, it was still a place of ideas, a place of of conversation. As Paul entered this city, that's not so much what bothered him. In fact, that would become an opportunity for him. What bothered him, what provoked him, Luke says, was the idolatry. In a city of some 10,000 people, it's estimated, there were over 30,000 statues and idols throughout the city. 
gods such as Plutus and Dionysus and Aphrodite, those Greek gods of Greek mythology, worshipped and revered by the people of Athens. And oh, how that made Paul's heart ache and burn. This is not how it should be. God alone deserves worship and all around him was idolatry. And so he's compelled, whether he was planning to rest in Athens or not, he's compelled to go preach the gospel as he's done in other cities. And he gets swept up in this conversation with with local philosophers, the, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Just two of the representative worldviews in this very eclectic, intellectual city. I don't want to get lost in the philosophy of the Epicureans and the Stoics, but let me tell you briefly what they were like. Epicureans lived for the moment. There was no purpose in life. Life was all chance. Life was about pursuing pleasure and peace and avoiding pain. They were secular agnostics, we might say. The Stoics were a bit more religious. They were, we might describe them as doing the best that you can. They believed that God was in everything. That there was this world soul that connects all of us. They were spiritual, we might say, but terribly misguided. And Paul comes into this context and he begins to proclaim the gospel And all of a sudden, he finds himself in the Areopagus, this place, this cultural center. A council of sorts. These men who held and guarded the religion and the morals and the education of the city. And it's there where Paul proclaims what is probably one of the most famous discourses in the book of Acts. The Sermon to the Unknown God. Why does Luke give it to us? Why is it instructive for us? Well, it's instructive for us because it's Paul's first interaction that we know of with an audience that's not Jewish. With a context that's completely foreign. Paul's got to find some kind of point of contact. They don't know the Scriptures in Athens. And so what is he going to do? Is he going to go to their felt needs? No, what he does is he acknowledges, he points out their acknowledgement of their own ignorance. Amidst a city of statues, amidst a city of idolatry, is this statue, this one that displays the confusion in the midst of it all. A statue to an unknown God. And Paul says, this God that you don't know, that you are confused about, I know Him. And let me tell you about Him. And beginning with creation and going all the way to consummation, he says, this is the God of the universe. He is Creator. Verse 24. He is Sustainer. Verse 25. He is ruler. Verse 26. He is father. Verses 28 and 29. He is judge. Verse 30. I'm sure this, you had Epicureans listening, you had Jews listening, you had Stoics listening, and you had all these people that 
adhered to all these different gods listening. What does the sermon mean for us? I think Luke gives us this sermon. Luke preserves this sermon for us to point out the fact that we in our post-Christian culture have this same mix, this same clash of worldviews. We are Athens. Maybe we used to be Berea. We used to be Thessalonica. Where you could lean on God's Word. Where you could lean on the acceptance and the acknowledgement, the general acknowledgement of a God who sent His Son, who gave His Word. But not now. Not here. Not in this place. We're no different than Athens. We are a culture filled with idolatry. We don't call him Plutos, but Plutos was the god of wealth. There's an idol. We don't call him Dionysus, but that was the god of wine, of alcohol, of doing what we can do to numb the pain in our world. That's an idol. We don't call her Aphrodite. But Aphrodite was the goddess of love and beauty and sex and certainly that is an idol in our world. And then you had the Epicureans, the secular agnostics. God may or may not exist. I don't really know and I don't really care. And then you have the misguided religious. They're all here in Athens. They're all here in Seattle. And Paul says, speak to them. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Romans 1, all men are without excuse because I have made myself known. With an acknowledgement that it's only by grace that true understanding can come, we have the same kind of point of contact as Paul. And it's one of the reasons why the book of Genesis is so foundational to how we view and how we understand the world. And I know that we have talked about this as a Christian education committee. We've talked about this as Jonathan opens up Genesis with our kids to show that Genesis, God as Creator, is so formative for everything how we view the world. It's a reminder. Paul in Athens is a reminder. As we tell our kids sometimes, kids, keep your eyes and ears open. It's a reminder for us to keep our eyes and ears open. What are the connections that we can draw on? Justice. We love justice in our world. Where did it come from? Who determines justice? Beauty, we love beauty. We exalt art. But where did that come from? The environment. Oh. God has spoken. We need to learn how to speak. We need to learn to make connections. One final thing I want to say and then we'll close. Verse 6 says, in chapter 17 says, these men have turned the world upside down. 
you look at the sermon title, maybe some of you do, maybe some of you don't, I think I called it Turning the World Right Side Up. I think that's a good way to think about it. The world is currently upside down. It's not as it should be. We look around and we feel the same indignation that Paul did. Jesus is not being worshipped as he deserves. We need to turn things right side up. We need to make things right. Of course, only he will do that completely when he returns. But the fact that God has spoken motivates us to keep our eyes and ears open that we might learn how to speak. But I realize when I say something like that, that's something big, like turn the world upside down. Turn the world, go and turn the world right side up as you go from this place. I don't think Luke is telling us as a church, he's not telling you to go necessarily be an Apostle Paul. Chances are none of you are going to have a platform in the Seattle City Council meeting next month. If you do, preach this sermon. But chances are you're not going to. But people of God, it's through the mundane. It's through the small. It's through the very ordinary things in life the very ordinary interactions, with your eyes fixed on Jesus, with a a Brian spirit that is digesting and, and learning and being changed by God's world, with your eyes and your ears open to those small interactions with your children, with your neighbors, with your co-workers, it is then that indeed we turn the world right side up. Collectively. We may not sweep a city like Paul does, But we're called to the same kind of thing. May God give us grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this model for us, this picture for us. Of who we are to be as a church. Oh, Father, may we treasure your word. May we treasure this time in Your Word as we ought. Modeling the church of Berea. And may we, as Paul was attuned and sensitive to what he saw in Athens and how those around him were thinking, may we, with our eyes and ears open, listen and see and find those points of contact to be able to speak truth to be able to give context, to be able to introduce those around us to the God who has saved us through His Son. Oh, Father, take this truth, plant it deep in us, we pray, for Your glory. Amen.